Please be seated. Those joining us online as well, grab your Bibles. And uh, it's time to hear God speak again to his people through his word. Good evening. Our first reading tonight is from the book of Acts in chapter 19. The church is growing, spreading throughout the Roman Empire, and the Apostle Paul is on the move. He says in Acts 19, verse 1, And it happened, while Apollos, he was a different minister, was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. You'd find it interesting if you read a few chapter, a few verses earlier, you find that Apollos, who was a learned man, a fervent teacher, had a partial revelation. He taught only the baptism of John. And he left quite a number of disciples behind him. Aquila and Priscilla fixed the situation and taught him the rest of the truth, but he left some footprints. Good thing Paul came by. So the apostle says to him, says to them in verse 4, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua, and when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. You have to consider this took place thirty, maybe forty years after the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And already the church needs to make theological adjustments with grace. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Psalm 29, the entire chapter. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord and the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. 
the Lord blesses his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Gospel portion, the account of the baptism of Jesus, is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're beginning at verse 4. Please stand as we hear the good news according to St. Mark. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. This was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. okay with the sound and father we ask that as we hear your word that the word that word that you speak to us through the scripture or through your son Jesus and the way the word is witnessed to us and brought to us by the Holy Spirit pray that your word will be creative, life-giving, and transforming. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the circumcision of Jesus and the presentation of Jesus in the temple. And we ask the question, how do we connect the dots? I mean, what does this have to do with the big picture? And it's certainly an issue that um, many in our community uh, struggle with. Somehow the incarnation, the 
Yes, Jewishness of Jesus, the faithfulness of his parents, his circumcision, his going to the temple. I mean, these are very, you might say, cozy, warm, even romantic stories. As I mentioned last week, it almost seems like Luke 1 and Luke 2 is part of some big musical. And uh, every time you turn around, someone's bursting out into song. Maybe you don't remember anything about last week's sermon, but you may recall that I hate musicals. So, what does this have to do with, you know, salvation and redemption? What does this have to do with the cross, the resurrection, the empty tomb? And for many of us, these can be, uh, again, nice, fuzzy, warm stories, but somehow a means to the end. What we tried to point out last week is that what saves us, what redeems us, and here we're talking about salvation as not a one-time event, but salvation as something that happens to us in the past when we say yes to Jesus, salvation that's ongoing according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and yes, salvation which also has its future dimension. So how and why are all these things, um, you might say, important for us? And if we struggle sometimes with the birth narratives or we struggle sometimes with Jesus in the temple, we have oftentimes a more difficult yeah, struggle with the baptism. Why on earth was Jesus baptized? Oh my goodness. I mean, it has stumped, you might say, or challenged Christians from the very beginning. And the church fathers were quite, also for all their wisdom, they were also stumped. And many just be, began to understand uh, or have a certain interpretation that's been passed down to us today which is not wrong, but it uh, highlights the humility of Jesus. Just as we need to be baptized, so Jesus himself is baptized. Not bad, but I don't think it fully answers, fully answers the question. Yes? So the question, not only challenging, and certainly at times in church history, it's been embarrassing for Christians, and something we haven't been able to answer. So let's take a moment to see if we can connect the dots and provide maybe a convincing um, understanding of the baptism of Jesus. And let's do it by taking a quick romp through our gospel passage. Now, if Mark was here, I don't think he would mind us going quickly through his passage because Mark's not only the shortest gospel, but Mark always wants action, you know, lights, camera, action. He doesn't want us to sit still for a moment. So we begin uh, just a little bit before the appointed passage in chapter one, <coughs> excuse me, of Mark, right? 
in the beginning, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, well, Son of God, we always maybe take that for granted. But uh, think for a moment. According to the scripture, who's the Son of God? Adam is called the Son of God. Um, sometimes angels are called sons of God. But Israel is called a son. Some of the kings are called sons. And here, yes, Jesus is given this yes, very uh, high status. He's the Son of God. Yes, and of course it's going to signify the relationship that he has with the Father. And then we read, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and all four Gospels, yes, highlight the work and ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, Mark doesn't want to spend a lot of time on him. He wants to get us to Jesus and to get the ministry of Jesus, you might say, to get his ministry started. But Mark, yes, uses Isaiah 40, or a part of Isaiah 40, verse 3 and onwards, all four Gospels use, use this verse. And interestingly, yes, a voice of one crying in the wilderness was also a verse that was well loved by the group that lived at Qumran. And we are not going to suggest for a moment that Jesus was sorry, that John was necessarily, necessarily a member of that group. If you happen to be a tourist today in Israel and you go to the site of Qumran, there's a cute little movie that has some value to it, but the, John the Baptist being a candidate or a member of that sect is not very convincing. Did John, like other Jews, share some theological ideas, no question. So here we have a proof text for John the Baptist. John is a voice, yes, crying, and a voice of one crying, yes, and then comma or pause, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. And John, of course, as we've mentioned many times in this church, because we do take geography, biblical geography, seriously, and there is oftentimes theology in geography. Yes, John is indeed in the wilderness. This is the place of messianic expectation. The wilderness is the place where God always encountered Israel and the Jewish people. It's the place where God revealed himself to his people. And so this is to hint uh, at Jewish history, the history of the people of Israel, the Exodus story. And so out from the desert, which by the way is a very difficult, dangerous uh, place to live, out of this place of danger and uncertainty and risk comes salvation. And John is, yes, giving the good news and so John comes baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance. And by the way, this is significant because John himself, again, as we've mentioned here on a number of occasions, John was extremely popular. As we read in Acts chapter 19, you have disciples, Jewish disciples of John, 
who certainly know about his baptism, they haven't heard about Jesus, his movement of calling the nation to repentance, a ministry that may have lasted, we don't know, three, five, perhaps six years, ministry spread all throughout the country and it spread throughout the Jewish world, the Jewish diaspora. And of course, their people are hungry. Um, there is a certain desperation. Perhaps it's not necessarily physical oppression, but it is indeed, um, there's something psychological, something spiritual going on. And uh, John easily could have had a stadium ministry. He could have had, he could have filled the stadium at Caesarea. Um, it wasn't quite built then, but let's just be hypothetical. A stadium at Beit Shan or at any other place in the country. John could have had his own private jet. Yes, his own YouTube channel. Yes, tens of thousands of people, you know, following him on TikTok. Yes, boy, the temptation's great. But John says no to all that. And he understands that he's the voice of one crying and telling the people of Israel from the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And he's doing it in a very unique and unusual way. He's baptizing people. And what's so strange about this is that we can't fully explain it. Why is he exactly doing this? What is he doing it for? It's certainly not exactly like Christian baptism as we know it today, although there's some overlap. It has some hints with uh, the way Jews baptized or, or sent converts to the ritual immersion bath. It might, it has hints with um, uh, the Jewish use of the ritual immersion bath, but it seems to be something quite unique on its own. And let's see what he's doing. It says he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people went out to him. That's the Bible's way of saying, when it says all Israel, all Jerusalem, many, okay? Large numbers are going to, to go out to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt um, around his waist, ate locusts and one, what does it say, wild honey? Um, most likely date honey. So this is the, the this is uh, John, uh, John the Baptist. And people come to him and it says they come confessing their sins. So they come with, uh, and they come in, they come in repentance, they come in penitence. And again, it's not easy, scholars, for two, I don't know, those studying the Bible for 2,000 years, there's, there's been a certain, I, I guess, um, there's just been many question marks about this. But I think a very, um, very, very convincing answer, I'm more than convinced that this is the right thing, is that John indeed is the one preparing the way for the Lord. 
But he is not preparing the way for the Lord by buying ads on Facebook. He's not, yes, he doesn't hire a publicity agent, yes, to make him into a uh, internet or a social media influencer. He doesn't have his own YouTube channel, yes. That's how sometimes our conception of John the Baptist. Well, he's just there sending us all an evite, telling us the Messiah is coming, you better get ready. You know, like the, some of the people stand out here at Jaffa Gate, you know, you know, yelling and screaming, you know, about the second coming. That would have been a pretty poor preparation. What John the Baptist is doing is something very biblical. He is connecting, yes, the scripture, uh, which talks about or taking the understanding that repentance is what brings redemption. Repentance is what brings God's movement. Yes, we all know this many times from revival, do we not? Where, where and when does a revival start? When a community deeply humbles itself and repents, and oftentimes that, hum, uh, that, hum, that process of humility or that process of genuine repentance and turning from sin, yes, brings the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not, that's not only been true in Christian history. It's certainly true in the scripture. And again, more than once we've read uh, from Isaiah 59, the Redeemer will come to Zion and those, to those who repent of their sins. Redemption comes to those who repent of their sins. And of course, repentance requires humility. And the prophets talk about Israel returning, right? The return or the restoration of Israel. In many cases, the prophets talk about restoration coming after repentance. And in other cases, there's restoration and the return to the land, and then there's repentance. But in any case, in any case, yes, repentance is key. Repentance is essential. And so John is preparing people, calling the nation to repentance. Now, it would be very nice just to preach a, a fiery sermon but John is in the line of the prophets and the prophetic word and the prophetic message very often, yes, comes with more than just the spoken word. You might recall how Isaiah gets his message across. Yes, he walks around half naked or maybe even naked. I shouldn't want to scandalize anyone. Or what about Ezekiel who stayed in bed you know, for years. Or what about Hosea, who marries a prostitute? Yes, all of this, yes, was to symbolize, yes, you know, the word of the Lord. Yes, to, to put, to in, in flesh or in body, yes, uh, the word itself. Because we are not simply sticks with brains, we learn, yes, and we're impacted, and we're moved, especially by symbolism, right? Symbolism binds up the truth for us. So John is preaching a baptism of repentance,
But in order to do what? In order that people will know that repentance brings forgiveness, they're going into the water and immersing themselves. And this is found in Ezekiel 37, yes, where God gives Israel a new heart and he sprinkles water on them and he puts his spirit in them. And so easily John can connect all these things with the Holy Spirit. It's a very biblical but pretty radical package. And Jesus, why does he go out? Well, in the Gospels, we learn about people who are sinners. All three, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, people who go out to John the Baptist are not saints. They are not you know, the pillars of society necessarily. They are those who have been convicted of their sin. But Josephus tells us that many of those who went out were not, excuse me, only or necessarily sinners. They were the righteous. They were the ones who were pious, right? They didn't go out to necessarily confess their sins. And I believe this is why Jesus goes to be baptized. Jesus has no sin. He has nothing to confess. But he goes to John. He goes and to John because he is interceding yes he is praying he is showing commitment to God's program the biblical program the program that soon he will adopt because Jesus will soon be telling people in the gospels repent for the kingdom of heaven repent for God is now taking charge and bringing redemption to people's lives this becomes the message of Jesus. And this is why Jesus goes to be baptized. Now, if you think there's something weird about this or something not, not convincing, then I'd just like to point you to Daniel chapter 9. In ja Daniel chapter 9, it gives us, yes, a real insight on how to intercede, how to intercede for our nation how to intercede for our people. And in that chapter, Daniel, who by the way is righteous, pious, so pious that you know God spares him uh, in the lion's den. And Daniel in his piety says to the Lord, he says, we, O Lord, the great awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all uh, who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Now Daniel personally really wasn't, can't be included in that group. Because Daniel's very faithful. But still at the same time, he identifies, yes, with the sin of his nation and interestingly, he doesn't say, well, my nation is in a real mess, thanks to those leftists. My nation is in a real mess, thanks to those Trump people. You know, they're the problem. They're what's at fault. It's the media's fault. No, it's the universities. No, it's the churches and their crooked religion. What does he say? He says, we have sinned. He identifies 
and connects with his people and loves them so much and wants their restoration or their reconstitution, wants their Jerusalem to, to be redeemed. Yes, that he takes us upon himself. And by the way, here's an important aspect to all of this. We always think of it, repentance as some, being something individual or personal. It's in this place, and biblically, it's often collective. It's something a community does, a group does, a tribe does. Yes, if my people who are called by my name, yes, if my people, meaning this, by the way, is reflected in uh, the Jewish prayers for Yom Kippur and the Vidui. In the Vidui, it starts off by saying, we have slandered, we have killed, we have stolen, we have ripped off banks, we have done this and we've done that. There's a whole long list of sins. Now, most people saying the, the prayer of confession, they haven't done those sins, but yet the repentance is collective. And by the way, when Jesus goes to the Jordan to be baptized, Mark doesn't make a point of this, but certainly Luke and Matthew does. It's not something he's doing alone. He's there with a lot of other people. Even that is, you might say, community-driven. Later when we read in the epistles, Paul will talk about how all of us have been baptized together, right? So we have to stop thinking like an individual. And so Jesus goes, yes, and when he goes, he, um, and again, Mark doesn't want to tell us a whole lot of details, so thankfully we have other, uh, thankfully we have other gospels. But as Jesus goes to, he is, goes into the, goes into the water, and here we have the promise, yes, that John talks about, the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was immersed by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. What's all this about? Yes, Jesus, he humbled himself. He's gone to John. He's going to let it be according to God's program. And why don't the others, you know, have the Holy Spirit falling on them at their baptism? So in the Jewish understanding, right, yeah, the Holy Spirit is almost always connected with prophetic speech or divine speech. You know those musicals in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 that I don't really, really like? Well, I like, the, I, I like the scripture. I just, well, every time it says Elizabeth or someone is filled with the Spirit, they begin to speak. Guess who speaks? Simeon is filled with the Spirit. He talks. Okay. Uh, Mary has the Holy Spirit come upon her. She sings. Elizabeth has the baby, you know, the baby is filled with the spirit in her womb. What does she do? She bursts out into poetry, yes, reciting or paraphrasing scripture. Peter stands up at, at Pentecost, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and what happens to him? He drinks battery acid. 
or he gets a rattlesnake out. Yes, he rolls on the floor. No, Peter's full of the Holy Spirit and he gives a sermon. In Acts chapter 13, it says Paul is full of the Holy Spirit and then he gives a sermon in the synagogue, right? The prophetic creative word comes out when the Spirit's resting upon us. Now, it's not the only use of the Spirit. That's not the only way the Spirit moves. But primarily, it's, it's the way the Spirit moves. By the way, Ephesians, yes, what does it say? Who can quote it? Be filled with the Spirit and... What is it? Remember, speaking? That's right. Don't be drunk with, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but instead speak to each other in, in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Right? Speak to each other. And what happened in Acts chapter 19 when our guys who didn't know the Spirit when they were filled with the Spirit? What did they start speaking in? They started speaking in tongues. They started speaking in tongues. Now, I know it's abused. It's horribly abused in the Christian community. I'm sorry it is. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, let no one despise prophecy. Let no one despise the gift of prophecy. Problem is, not everyone's a prophet, and lots of people make themselves out to be prophets, and they're talking nonsense. But it is a legitimate gift to be exercised in the community, and it comes upon people and with the Holy Spirit. And so the, so the Jewish people, they're a little bit, there's no more Isaiah, there's no more Jeremiah, there's no more Ezekiel. So guess what? They kind of think, well, the Holy Spirit's pulled back a little bit because the Holy Spirit and prophecy are the things that be most associated, most connected. And so if the Holy Spirit's pulled back a little bit, uh, the Spirit comes only on the most worthy, worthy, worthy of individuals. I mean, you've got to be very and the Spirit falling upon Jesus, yes, and that's our Jewish context, is a way of telling us exactly who Jesus is. And because at the same time, yes, the Spirit and the movement of the Spirit isn't quite what it used to be, when God wants to get a message through to his people, how does he do it? He speaks through a batkol, the audible voice. And here we have the most amazing, amazing, yes, affirmation of Jesus. I'm sure Jesus probably already knows this because of the relationship he has with the Father. But still, here's the voice. This is my chosen or my beloved son. Yes, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am well pleased. And that voice, listen to me, just, just a moment. That voice, the voice, yes, is not exactly like the voice we read in Psalm 29. That's the voice that roars. That's the voice that, right, is over the flood. That's the voice that is powerful and unmistakable. 
This is a very small voice. It's a quiet voice. It's a voice that affirms Jesus. It says, I am well pleased with you. Yes. But that voice, as quiet as it may be, is just as powerful, if not even more powerful, than the roaring voice, yes, uh, of God in Psalm 29. It's a voice that affirms us. It's the voice of a father, yes, that speaks to his son. And by the way, it's the voice of a father who speaks to us, right? That affirmation, that the very thing that gives us an identity. And that, by the way, is much stronger than our political context. It's much stronger than our dysfunctional family or any trauma that we suffered or any cranky, miserable father who failed in his duty as a father. Right? Romans 8 says, right, we cry Abba, but the Spirit says to us, you know, it says to it, it, it affirms or confirms our adoption. Our adoption. And we have to ask the question, but why was that? Why is Jesus, God, why is God well pleased with Jesus? It's a good question. What makes him well pleased? Well, for, for years I used to think, you know, I know what makes Jesus. It's just because Jesus hasn't done a thing. Jesus hasn't written a book. They didn't make any movies about him. They don't have any denominations named after him. There's no uh, ministry yet, no healing, no deliverance. And I thought, and I still think it's partially true. Yes, that, yeah, that love that the Father has for Jesus and the same love that the Father has for us is not based on anything we do. Yes, it's not based on anything we do. True? But here's the paradox. The paradox is also true at the same time, and it's not a gift we earn, but it's the way we respond to a gift. There's something called pleasing the Lord. Paul talks about it in the epistles. Paul talks about, I want to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Or there is the reward for the for the servant who's done the right thing at the right time. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or there is God in the Hebrew Bible, right, who rejoices over Israel and the Jewish people according to Zephaniah. So what is it that Jesus did if he didn't do a, hasn't done a miracle, hasn't fought the devil yet, hasn't gone to the cross? What is it that he did? I'll tell you. And this is what I think God also commends his son for. He did absolutely nothing. He waited patiently. He waited faithfully. He was part of a family. Yes, I'm sure the mother, the father, someone said, Jesus, take out the trash, <clears throat> you know, and pick up your bicycle, right? He worked the job. Thus sanctifying labor, work with our hands, he went to Jerusalem with his family and kept the, the mitzvot, or the commandments, 
all those unexciting, unmessianic things. He was faithful. And God says, yes. And with that faithfulness comes the Holy Spirit. Comes the Holy Spirit. Now, that Holy Spirit, which is given to Jesus because of his exceptional, being an exceptionally pious, faithful son, is the same Holy Spirit that is given to us. But on the day of Pentecost, when that spirit is given, it's not given to those that are extra holy, or it's not given to the super pious, to ones who scrupulously keep all the commandments. It is freely given to everyone. And Peter says on the day of Pentecost, this is what the prophet Joel said, right? The spirit will be poured out, yes, on the big, on the small, on the important, on the unimportant, But I'll tell you that while we all have the Holy Spirit and it is given freely as a gift, being filled by the Holy Spirit or being guided by the Spirit or being empowered by the Spirit is something else, yes? And what I think is key in the ministry of Jesus And it's also key for us, right, is that what do we see and learn from all of this? Not just the faithfulness of Jesus, but his humility, right? His humility. And that humility, yes, is what attracts, okay, or brings, you might say, brings God's God's Holy Spirit. You know, we are baptized, we are baptized into the name of Jesus. And we spend so much time fighting about how you should be baptized that we miss the importance of what it means to be baptized. Yes, dunking, dunking, sprinkling, believer's baptism, infant's baptism. It's not as important as we think. What is the meaning of being baptized in the name of Jesus? It's not a formula. It's a description. And the Hebrew behind being baptized in the name of Jesus is the, behind the Greek is being, is being baptized not in his name, as it's put it, translated in our Bible, but being baptized into him. Yes, we are baptized for his sake. We are baptized um, in reference to his life and death and resurrection. Yes, we are baptized into his life. Yes, and if we are baptized into his life, yes, what does it mean? It means that we imitate that life. We follow Jesus. And a few verses from this passage, he says, come and follow me. Come and follow me, which is what? Again, it's a life, living a life of humility, living a life that he's prepared to identify, yes, with the, with the sinners of Israel. And later we understand he identifies with the sinners of the whole world, that he makes, he makes atonement for them. And ultimately he still identifies with us by sitting on the right hand of the Father and making intercession, making intercession. 
So that life of identity, right, of right, connecting with you know, those who, around us who don't know the Lord, that life of humility, which, by the way, invites the Holy Spirit and allows us to be, continue to be filled with the Spirit, that's in part what I think it means to be right, baptized into to Jesus. Be to be baptized, yes, according to who he is and what he teaches. Yes, when we talk about baptism in the name of Jesus, it's not some magic formula like the name. In fact, the whole phrase, the name of Jesus, is a, just a Hebraic way of saying the person of Jesus. The Lord is a strong tower. Well, the, or the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the Psalms tell us. Well, it's not taking the name of God, the yud heh and somehow making that a, uh, a charm or a protection. It's a Jewish way, Hebrew way of saying the Lord himself. Yes, so we are baptized into Jesus. Now, what allows us to live his life? It's being empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is given to us just like it was given to Jesus. But we remain filled with the Spirit and we're empowered by the Spirit, yes, to live the life that Jesus lived, yes, when we're prepared to be faithful and to humble ourselves. Yes, this is what I think we take away from the baptism. This is how the baptism you might say, becomes something essential and connects to even this bigger picture. By the way, the same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, which, yes, is going to empower Jesus and a few verses is going to push him, kick him into the desert to be tested. And dear friends, yes, the book Gospel of Mark is nothing more than a battleground. Jesus will be tested and there will be opposition from his family, from the political establishment, from the religious establishment, yes, from most, you might, you might say, critically from his own friends and his own disciples. And yet that spirit, that Holy Spirit, and that ultimate dependence upon God and that strong sense of affirmation of who he is. Yes, he refuses to quit. And he does end up at the cross. And he does make atonement and give his life as a ransom for many. Yes. And we're called sometimes to battle, to war. We'll be tested. We will find life difficult and challenging. But again, it's that... Holy Spirit that will empower us to keep on and to be faithful and to live a life that pleases the Lord and uh, ultimately brings him glory. I'd like to finish by reading the prayer of the English, Anglican liturgy that comes from Good Friday. And this prayer goes as follows. It says, by your mystery, or by the mystery of your holy incarnation, by your birth, childhood, and obedience, by your baptism, fasting, and temptation. And the congregation responds, gracious Lord, deliver us. By your ministry and word and work, 
by your mighty acts of power, by your preaching of the kingdom, gracious Lord, deliver us. By your agony and trial, by your cross and passion, and by your precious death and burial, gracious Lord, deliver us. And finally, by your mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, and by your sending of the Holy Spirit, finish for me, gracious Lord, deliver us.